they can get a cheerleader a lot cheaper than me. All I'm looking for in deposition of the defendant is what it is I want to start my case with. It isn't about your war with that lawyer. It's about your war with injustice and your war for justice. And I'd say don't be worried about how you can maximize your fee in any one given deal. Think about your reputation long term. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. So I'm here today with uh, Tom Dukes, and it is uh, a pleasure uh, to be with him. Tom, I've, I've, I have so many uh, starting places that I want to start, and it's slightly unfair because I'm prepared. So where I want to start is how someone who was born in Chicago has a Southern accent like you have. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for um, reaching out. This should be fun. Uh, and uh, as you are a superb lawyer, you're always prepared. But uh, this is a native Central Florida accent. Uh, I was born at Cook County Hospital. My dad was uh, a resident at the Illinois Eye and Ear Infirmary. He actually was the first retinal surgeon in Central Florida. And um, I, I, I was born in Chicago and then for a variety of reasons, uh, we came to Lakeland, and uh, so I arrived when I in Lakeland when I was about four, and uh, the, the demographics have changed, the, the the state of Florida has changed, but this is a native Central Florida accent. Uh, people ask me about it a lot, actually, but that's what it is. So, so you are generally thought of by uh, my side of plaintiff's lawyers as a true believer, and you're thought of as a true believer by your side, the people that know you too. Is the true believer come from your dad being a doctor? It it does. Um, It does. Uh, I've I've been very blessed in that I started practicing in 1984, and I've had one job I've sat in I've sat in various desks within this building, but I've been in one building ever since then. And it's it's always been defense work, and for 30-plus years, it's been virtually exclusively medical malpractice defense. And a lot of that comes from my dad uh, for a variety of reasons. In fact, when uh, I was a younger lawyer, he's he's still with us, but he's elderly. Uh, when I was a younger lawyer, I had several ophthalmology cases, and he would help me with those cases uh, and he would actually come to trial and sit in the back and give me advice. But I, I learned, you know, I learned the perspective of of from a physician in that, you know, I knew as his son what it was to get called in the middle of the night to go to the emergency room to operate on somebody who'd just been in a bad car wreck and and was ultimately going to lose an eye. Uh, I, I knew he was a driven man. Uh, if you know an ophthalmologist, you will find they are type A. He is a driven man, and maybe some of that rubbed off on me. Maybe not. Maybe it's not all good to be as driven as he is, and in some respects, as driven as maybe I am. I don't know, but uh, but I saw that perspective. Also, learned of physicians as the great the great healers. My dad had the gift as a retinal surgeon of being able to restore sight, and uh, if you hold the human hand in your heart, uh, the human heart in your hand. If you restore somebody's vision, I mean, that is the highest and best calling of a physician, in my view. And so people would give him these gifts at Christmas, They things they, they built with their own hands, that they carved with their own hands. I mean, not 
just buying something from a store, something that they really put their heart and soul in. And they would write him these notes to say, thank you for the gift of sight. And so I, you know, that, uh, and I also knew how hard he worked. He, he, he was the only, he was the only ophthalmologist, only retinal surgeon in Central Florida. There were other ophthalmologists, but he was only retinal surgeon in Central Florida for a long time. He was on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week for years. So I saw his commitment. And, uh, you know, from that, uh, it, it made me, I don't know if I'm a true believer or not, but it certainly influenced the way I view You are a true believer. You are a true believer for, you know, I, let me ask you this question. Could you ever sue a doctor? I would not sue a doctor. I would not sue a doctor. Um, I, I just, I, I just, and it, you know, now let me say this. Uh, I'm also a pragmatist. I mean, I defend malpractice cases for a living. Yeah. And I know yeah. doctors are people just like everybody yeah. else. They're doctors that wake up at night worrying about their patients. They're doctors that wake up at night worrying about things they shouldn't even be thinking about. So I am a pragmatist, but I would not sue a doctor. I, I, it's just not is not who I am. It's not, and not to at all suggest that there are doctors who need to be sued because they're all stack of them. Yeah. But, I, I, but yeah. it, I, I would not do it. I would not do it. Um, yeah, I think that that's consistent. I think, uh, you know, the advantage that it seems like you have in defending doctors is it feels like it's always personal for you. And I don't mean that in an offensive way. I don't mean that in a, like you're taking everything personally, but it feels personal to you when, uh, I'm actively litigating a case against you. And I think that is a, you know, it, it feels like a superpower. It's far, far, far from a superpower, but I, I appreciate you saying that, but it is, it is far from superpower. I do though. Um, you know, I do enjoy the work. It is, it is fascinating work, for a variety of reasons. One, the lawyers that I have cases with as co-defendants and on the other side as plaintiffs, they are superb lawyers. I mean, one thing about medical malpractice cases in Florida, the uh, the the towel has been wrung out of excess water. That is, there aren't people doing this on your side that don't know what they're doing. And uh, that brings with it a bunch of challenges because every case I got, I got a guy like Dave Paul on the other side. But it also brings, uh, you know, there is a, there's, there's a collegiality. Uh, and yeah, it bring it, it is very challenging to me. I love the challenge of, uh, of dealing with good lawyers. The subjects are complex. So you got to, it's a little like intellectual log rolling. You got to jump from topic to topic to topic in a given day. I mean, I may work on, you know, three or four or five or six different complex subjects. And so, you know, I've over the years developed a little bit of a baseline so I can move pretty quickly from one topic to the other. But that's a, a fascinating aspect of the job. The cases mean things. Uh, they mean a lot to my doctors. They mean a lot to the folks you represent. So they're important cases. Uh, it is never dull. They're not, you know, there are aspects of the practice that I don't much care for, but I do enjoy the work. That is, I find it very, I find it animating. I find it a challenge. I like the work. How many years have you, have you been in that firm? I started in 1984, started in May of 84. So 
37 in May. Assume somebody's picked a good partner, although that's a good question to ask. How do you pick a good partner? But how do you keep it together for that long? What are some of the keys? Uh, I've been treated very fairly here. Um, my, in addition to uh, Ralph Martinez, my great friend and mentor, Jack McEwen, um, those guys were generous with me from day one. The way partnerships stay together is several things. One, you've got to have people with compatible interests. You've got to have people with compatible goals, and you've got to have people with compatible work ethics. The system works when everybody who is a partner, shareholder, perceives that everybody else is pulling his or her weight. Uh, a lot of friction can develop when some feel that they that they are either working much harder than others or that they are not appreciated. And so I've been very fortunate in that I've had, first of all, strong people of faith, people that set good examples as mentors and role models. But secondly, a similar work ethic. Everybody, everybody works hard. Everybody has an attitude that the rising tide raises all the boats. It's not a we's and a they's as far as clients. We, you know, we, 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 uh, we, we encourage everybody to develop business and we give them credit for that business and that it's worked well over the years. Now we've had others come and go, but the core group has remained stable for many, many, many years. Uh, MJ Hall is a superb lawyer and she's been with us for decades. So um, we've been fortunate in that regard, but it, it, what works is a similar work ethic, a similar set of goals and a similar set of life um, views of life, uh, life attitudes, uh, what one wants out of life, uh, and balancing what one will do to get to where one wants to be out of life. You don't strike me as a big meeting guy. Like I, I, I don't not, visualize you. I, I have many, many shortcomings, but the inability to make a decision is not one of them. Um, if I had my way, our meetings would be held standing up. Um, I, I'm not I sat a, I'm, in a recent meeting with you on Zoom. There's a Zoom meeting going on, and you're talking on the phone. During, you're muted. And I watched like I was like, he's just taking calls right in the middle of the Zoom meeting. How, how is he doing that? I was paying close attention to that meeting, and uh, uh, but I'm not a meeting guy. I, uh, I'm not a meeting guy. I, like I say, if I had my way, the meetings would be held standing up. I feel like I want to press into the work ethic issue because uh, from those that know you, you are, I've heard these words to describe you from people that directly work with you. Consistent, hardworking, regimented. Um, I I am, I I do feel like discipline is an important part of being the best that you can be in a variety of arenas. So I, I am a, I try to be a disciplined person. Uh, a, A huge part of working hard is enjoying the work and I do enjoy the work. So that, that helps a lot. Uh, but uh, my, I'm usually at the office at by 7:45. Actually, I'm very fortunate in that there's a my my 
uh, church, which is St. James, is very close to my office, so I can make 7 o'clock Mass if I'm in town. So I go there, then I come to the office, I'm sitting at my desk. How often do you go to Mass? How often do you go to Mass? Every day I'm in town, which has actually been fortunate during COVID. But uh, So I can make 7 o'clock Mass, and I'm sitting in my office by 745, um, you know, and I usually don't eat lunch for, you know, I just, I don't need it necessarily. Um, you know, and, and usually leave uh, 6.30 or so in the evening. And I, I try to work Saturday mornings, take Sundays off. So do you believe that somebody can be an elite trial lawyer that does not have a strong work ethic? No. Uh, put it this way. I find the two almost... Uh, I think they go hand in hand. I mean, you've got a strong work ethic. What do you think about that? I I'm, I asked the question. You know, I'm not. I can't rule it out. I just I haven't seen it. You know, so I'm not saying there's not somebody that could be so. They have like a photographic memory, and they be you know like they. You know, I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying of the when I think of the elite trial lawyers that I have personally fought against in a courtroom, and I think of those I've watched and observed, I've never seen one that I look at, and I don't think they have a strong work ethic. They, they tell stories about the great Leon Hanley, who um, most folks listening won't know, but he when when you and I came to this town. He was a mountain of a man, um, huge, bigger than life in every way. And he, uh, my friend and mentor Martinez, worked for him uh, many years ago. But he had a photographic memory. Uh, he he was legendary for his ability to learn things on the fly. But he still also had a very strong work ethic. So I I uh, I agree with you. That is doing what we do well requires a mastery of detail. And that mastery of detail only comes through taking the time and effort to understand things. And, um, you know, so often in what we do, it's a little like being a detective. I mean, there's a mystery a lot of times as to why things happen. I mean, the records are incomplete. You know, stories conflict. And sometimes you have to be a detective, taking into regard what you know, what's logical, and human nature, and trying to figure out what happened. But a lot of that takes immersion into nuance, and all that implies a strong work ethic. So I agree with you. There may be out there somewhere somebody who's good who just wings it, but I I haven't met him or her yet. You you know, the the human nature piece, I think uh, you have a perspective on human nature that, uh, you know, I'm not, I have a hypothesis. I don't know that it's accurate or not, but it seems like generally, even in an adversarial uh, line of work, you try to see the good in others. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you're a saint, but like I'm remembering you in trial I had an expert that um, spent a lot of time doing expert work. And so there was a big bias piece. 
And I remember when you were explaining it to the jury, you you presented the bias. The bias was clear. You talked about how it can have an effect, but it was like you didn't like demonize him. Uh, it seemed like you actually tried to like, I don't know, uh, it seemed like you tried to see the good in it. Um, am I Is my hypothesis correct or no? Uh, I think that's true. I think part of surviving in this business is it is an adversarial business, but we don't necessarily have to be adversaries. I mean, I have great respect for you. We will vigorously degree, disagree on things that, you know, in cases that we're involved in, but I hope and believe we will do it agreeably. So it is an adversarial business, but it doesn't have to be conducted in an adversarial fashion. Good lawyers frequently will never see the judge in a complex case that is hard hard litigated until the pretrial because there's a currency of the realm. They know they know what they're doing, they know what's appropriate, and they work out differences. And um they do it on the telephone. You know, they don't file a motion if something's, you know, three days overdue. You call somebody and you say, Look, you guys are overdue, how much time do you need? Extend, as the great Abraham Lincoln said, well, it's a matter of philosophy. He would concede every point which was not essential to the defense of his case or to the prosecution of his case. In other Mm -hmm. words, agree on what you can agree on, define what you disagree on, articulate why you disagree, and try to work it out. And at least you've narrowed the issues. And good lawyers who know what they're doing and who respect each other can resolve 90-plus percent of conflicts working that way. And then, you know, if you need some help from the court, fine. At least you've defined the issues and you've done your best to work it out. And um, so it's an adversarial business, but it doesn't need to be conducted in an adversarial way. Uh, You know, I like people, and we're all subject to our lesser angels Another truism of this business is the more pressure you put on somebody or the system puts on somebody, and include ourselves, the more you find out about them and the more you find out about yourself. Uh, you, you know, we're not getting shot at. I don't mean to equate the two, but if you try a lawsuit with somebody, you know them and they know you and you know yourself better. And we don't always rise to the occasion, but generally, you find out a lot about people. The more pressure the system puts on them, the more pressure the lawsuit puts on them. Uh, it, 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 I, don't know, I don't know if it defines character, but it does reveal it. <laughs> That's so true. It really is. How do you uh, deal with the pressure? I've struggled with it. I've struggled with it. Um, You know, showing up at 7 o'clock mass helps a lot. Faith helps a lot. Um, You got to understand in this business that you are like the manager of a baseball team. The manager of the baseball team does his job when, with the game on the line, he's got his best hitter at the plate. The good manager has his best hitter at the plate with the game on the line. The bad manager has his worst hitter at the plate with the game on the line. 
And sometimes the best hitter hits a line drive that the center fielder catches right at the fence. And sometimes the worst player gets sawed off, but it lands just fair for a, a double. And so we, our, our job is to ethically marshal facts in the light that gives those we represent the best chance for the best outcome. We are not, we don't pick judges. We don't pick venires. We have a limited ability to pick the jury. We don't make the facts. We don't make the witnesses on the other side. We don't make the lawyers on the other side. We don't make our clients. And uh, so part of what helps dealing with the pressure, and there is pressure, is this recognition that all you can be is the best lawyer you can possibly be. You may not even be the best lawyer in the courtroom. But if you are the best lawyer you can be, that's all you can do. And um, But I, I confess, I've struggled with it over the years. Uh, I think everybody that achieves at a high level and what some might define as a high-pressure occupation uh, struggles with it, and I, and I have. But I'm, I'm doing better at 61 uh, than I was at 51 or 41 or 31. Um, I'm not there yet, but uh, it, and I think I'm doing better at keeping it in perspective. How often do you exercise? I have not missed a day of exercise in probably a decade. I had my knee fixed. <laughs> uh, my good friend locally fixed it for me. I tore my meniscus. And uh, even then, don't tell my wife. Don't tell my wife. But uh, even then, I, the day of the surgery, I found a way to lift some weights. Not crazy, just, you know, but I'm... Uh, and, and I'd say, with good reason, my wife would roll her eyes. Uh, with good reason, uh, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty disciplined about that. Hey, let me let me just be sure that I'm hearing you accurately. You're saying for the last ten years, there hasn't been one day that you haven't exercised in one format or another. Not a single day. Not a single day. At, 3,650 straight days of exercise. I mean, the things that I'm getting to learn, it's like I, I, I have the, the benefit of uh, seeing you from a number of different lenses. And my recent one was being personal counsel for one of your clients. And it was, it felt almost unfair because I was seeing how you know, you saw everything. I was reading your letters as personal counsel. And what I what I took out of that was, uh, you know, you have opinions and you're not afraid to express them. Like when a witness, what, what the credibility of a witness is when you're evaluating things and you're communicating your evaluation, you evaluate the witness. I, I, uh, I remember thinking, as I'm writing these letters, I'm giving my friend but <laughs> adversary, Dave Paul, a lot of insight here into, into the way the wheels turn between the ears. I remember thinking that. Um, but on the other hand, you know, on my end as on your end, you know, people want advice. And, and so give them what you think. And give them what you think. And, um, you know, ultimately, on my side, you know, we don't make decisions. I mean, we, we're we're players in the process, but 
I am not the final decision maker on you know what happens in a case. Uh, frequently, as a malpractice defense lawyer, frequently there's an insurer involved, um, but not always. I have a number of private clients as well. And ultimately, it is a decision made by others with my input, but they, you know, uh, they pay me for advice, so I try to give it to them. What are some of the things you see that other people could take away, that these are some of the qualities or the practices or the mindsets of the best defense lawyers, and in particular in medical malpractice? Uh, I think the best defense lawyers in malpractice cases are pragmatic, and this this starts well, well, well before the courtroom. If you think a case needs to be settled, it doesn't do anybody any good for you to pretend otherwise. The unpardonable sin for a defense malpractice lawyer is to Call somebody a week before the trial starts on your side and tell them you've had a change of heart or something's changed and they need to now take a case which you've said for four years was defensible and try to settle it. That's the unpardonable sin, in my opinion. Now, sometimes things change. There's no doubt about that. Um, And as things change, our opinions can change. But if there's no good reason to change what you've been saying for years, it is it's just wrong to make up that reason because you're scared to go to trial. And anybody who, you know, the the notion of, and the, I'll depart for a moment from the, the issue of pragmatism, but, you know, the notion that people love to try cases, it is always an emotional roller coaster. I mean, these trials are hard. They are hard on the lawyers personally, they are hard on the clients. I mean, I know what those I represent go through sitting in that courtroom. They are hard on they families. Hate it, don't they? Do they, do well, they, they hate it they, as much as I think they hate it? They hate it. They hate it. And I don't blame them. It, it would be very hard. It would be very hard to, you know, to, to go through one of those cases as a defendant. It's hard, but, but it's hard on the lawyers, too. I mean, it is hard on the lawyers. It is hard on their families. I mean, for, you know, a couple of weeks before the trial starts, if you ask my wife, she would say, hey, you've been a little distracted lately. Uh, Because there's always, it's always in the back of your mind as it approaches. It's always in the back of your mind. But, but, But good defense lawyers, as good lawyers overall, are pragmatic. If the case needs to be settled, figure it out. Tell people it needs to be settled. Don't change your mind on the on the EVA trial. And beyond that, I've seen good lawyers who are who who, who pick a theme and are good at emphasizing the theme. And it, it works on both ways. But pick a theme, emphasize your theme, make your theme understandable, and work to establish the facts that support the theme. So I got um, pragmatic early evaluators of a case, early evaluators of a case. What are the other qualities that make the most effective defense lawyers? Uh, Somebody that can pick a theme and somebody that can identify the issues. My great friend, Jack Jack McEwen, 
was a tremendous judge of what the issues were. He could take a deposition that some lawyers would take for 200 pages. He could take it in 40 pages and leave having identified the issue and having made his points. And there are a lot of lawyers that don't see the forest for the trees. There really are. There are lawyers on both sides that get lost in minutiae, bogged down in things. It is an art to be able to figure out what's important and focus on what's important. So the best defense and plaintiff's trial lawyers understand what's important about the case. They're pragmatic, and they understand what the real issues are. And some of that's training, but some of it's innate. Uh, just like, you know, we all have our own gifts. Some people, you can, you know, you can coach them all day and they're never going to be very good at basketball. And some people just naturally are going to be good at basketball. Same, I think some of that is with a trial lawyer. I think there's just an intuitive gift by skilled lawyers on both sides where they understand what the real issues are and they can focus on them. Yeah, it, it seems like it's distilling, uh, all of the complexity of a case to allow it to be clearer what the issue is and that, you know, some lawyers and it's ineffective when they do it, they can't clarify what the real issues are. And so they know all the case and they're talking about the facts and the facts and they're, and not that the facts don't matter, but it's, it's just, they're never really, able to frame the issue simply. And most of us, we really want the issue framed for us. In an understandable way, in an understandable way. Yeah. Which is, which um, is an art, which is an art to take the complex and make it simple is an art. How do you do it? How do you do it? What's your process? Um, I reduce every case to a one sentence theme. Any case, no matter how complex. How do you do the thinking, clarifying, like what's the process for you to do that? Like where typically are you when you're trying to distill the issues? Is uh, various it, where, times. where are you at? Uh, various times, various times. Sometimes it's clear from the first time you meet your client. Sometimes I don't come up with that sentence until a couple of weeks before the trial. It it depends. It just it 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 just it, the process defines the sentence and sometimes it's early and easy and sometimes you got to think about it a lot. Do you ever change it mid-trial? No. No. I guess, you know, <laughs> only only a I guess it was a it was Winston Churchill who said, the man who never changes his mind never changes anything. So you got to be open to it, but I sure, I sure try not to make it a practice. Because you can't, um, you, you got to have a plan. And, you know, I guess it was Mike Tyson that said, everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the mouth. That's true, too. So, you know, but you you got to you got to stick to your theme because you've laid it out in opening. You've laid it out with your witnesses. If it's sound, I am reluctant to change it. 
you're saying you what let let me say this back and you tell me if I'm if I'm tracking even an effective counter theme by a plaintiff that that you're like this is effective I'm going to have to address it you still don't deter from your main narrative you still stay right. in your main narrative even if you hear a you don't get sucked into a counter narrative as being your main narrative. That's well put. You've got to be cognizant of the counter narrative, but you got to, in my view, if you have a solid theme and you've thought it through well, even if there's a counter narrative, the wisest thing is to stick to your solid theme is to try to grow the seeds that you have planted throughout the trial and then try to tie them together at the end. I have a a vision on uh, when I think of you in preparation. I don't know if you remember this, but we were trying uh, that case in Alachua County. The jury's out, and they're out for a long time. And I'm walking and I'm stressed out beyond measure. I'm younger than you. I'm about 10 years younger than you. And I'm, and you're in your, you know, prime of just trying a lot of medical malpractice cases. And I'm looking at you like, how does he go from trial to trial? So I said, I'm like, I don't understand how you do this. Like I was physically exhausted. I was emotionally exhausted. We're waiting on the jury. And I'm like, I, 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 I feel like I need months off to recover is how I I felt in my mind. And you told me about your preparation and having your questions prepared before you ever got to trial, having all your questions all written out before you got to trial. And while it sounds so elementary today, now that I'm thinking about it many years later, I remember at the time thinking that is essential. I mean, like you have to have it done ahead of time. Otherwise you're exhausted because you're, you're, you're trying to write out all your examinations till two and three in the morning. You're exhausted anyway, but, um, that is my practice. That is, if I, if I identify a case that is going to go to trial well, well before that trial starts, I will start preparing the examinations and and what I do is uh, it's a multi-step process but what I do is this gets into the notion of taking depositions but I, I take particularly the opposing experts I try to take those depositions you're, you're trying to establish three things one what the witness is going to say that is the opinions two what the witness is not going to say, the things you can take off the table. For example, I have no opinion on the cause of death. I have no opinion on life expectancy. But thirdly and equally importantly, I think the smart trial lawyer works in the deposition of the opposing expert to set up the sound bites that you can use in your cross-examination at trial. And then maybe, you know, I don't know, depending on time, but Weeks before the trial, I will go back and index that deposition. I do it myself. Very tedious. But, you know, some people don't do them. Some people have other people do them. I've found that I know what I'm looking for, and I can do it efficiently. And so I go back and, and read that deposition and dictate 
a you know what the witness said and where he or she said it, and from that I construct a cross examination before the trial starts that is dictated with page and line references, and it's modified during the trial based on what people say, but the skeleton, the framework is there. So, you know, when it's Wednesday night and you're exhausted and it's nine o'clock and you got the witness coming on tomorrow, you're not starting from scratch picking up a deposition that's 170 pages and thinking, all right, what am I going to do with this witness in cross-examination? It helps focus that theme. It helps remind you of the specifics. It's just just a good, and then you got, you know, the work's not 100% done, but at 9 o'clock it's 85% done. And you go through and you double-check your references and you change things, strike them out, add to it as the case has presented itself. The the most effective plaintiffs' attorneys. What do you see them doing that that um, you find most effective? What are the things that either habits or mindsets or or the way whatever it is? What do they do that makes them most effective? And the, and then the counter to that is, what are the things you see that are the least effective? You're just like that is not effective you know, um, that you see more common than you would like? The most effective plaintiff's lawyers, as I think the most effective defense lawyers, have a unified theme for their case. And you'll frequently hear it at the beginning of their opening statement. This is the case about, and I'm certain Dave Paul does it in every case, this is the case about, and then fill in the blank. And it's their theme for the case. And then there's a likability factor, uh, you know, it, and, and you can't really, you can't really teach this either. I mean, some people are just more likable than others, and the most effective plaintiffs' lawyers are those that juries like. And I, I don't find it particularly effective to be for the lawyer on the other side to be flamboyant. I find the most effective plaintiffs' lawyers are polite understated, disciplined in their message, and at ease with who they are. And it's, you know, a large part of this is who a jury likes. And that gets, you know, and there are a bunch of battles within that. They're, do they like the plaintiff better or do they like the defendant better? Do they like the plaintiff's lawyer better or do they like the defense lawyer better? Do they like the plaintiff's expert better or do they like the defense expert better? But the best plaintiff's lawyers are ones that have something intuitive, something they just they just have, it, that makes juries like them and want to trust them. Because it is a battle. A large part of it's a battle. The juries are looking for somebody that they think is the arbiter of good information. And that's, this gets back to, to uh, you know, your ethos. And the, those who write about these things say you must at all – at all times, protect your ethos. That's your credibility with the jury. So if I can find something that the other lawyer says that I can demonstrate is not accurate, that's a very powerful weapon. And on the other side, if I say something that proves to be inaccurate, that's a powerful weapon against me. So how do you handle that? How do you handle it when you said something and he, and you believed it to be accurate at the time, but it turned out you were just wrong and it looked uh, 
you know, I, I, I hope you've had it because I've had it where I, I say something yep. I really believe to be true. And then when the facts come out, it literally is, I was not correct, you know. You know, I, I, I'd tell in some fashion, I'll either introduce it through a question uh, or I will, you know, I will tell people, maybe even in closing. But I'd, I'd, I've, all of us have said things. I asked a question in deposition the other day that I was a deposition, wasn't a trial. But, you know, I asked a question that I, I thought, I truly thought was the right answer. And it turned out, or was, was a legitimate question. And it turned out that what I had read that gave rise to the question, I had, I had not remembered correctly. So it, it happens to all of us. And if, if I have made a mistake, then I, a good way to introduce it would be to say, for example, with a, 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 a way, a, an expert that is either hostile or friendly, doesn't matter necessarily, but say, you know, I, I, earlier I think I had said the blood gas on the 7th was 7.41. I was in error on that point. It was 6.8. I'd misread the data. So let's understand that going forward. So you correct it. You correct it yourself. You know, and and that's where it is. Uh, but the goal, of course, is not to make those mistakes in the first place, which gets back to your question about good trial lawyers who aren't hard workers. Because in complex subjects, there's a lot of data to master. There's a lot of data to master. Yeah. And truly, genuinely, the devil is in the details in a lot of these cases. So the goal is not to make the mistake in the first place. If you were not a med mal defense lawyer, what would you be? I tried coming out of law school to be a prosecutor, and I think I would have been a good one. Now, I'm fortunate in the choices that I made, but they would not even interview me for a prosecutor job because I had not taken the criminal clinic. They would not even interview me. They wouldn't even interview me. And, uh, you know, I, I, and I'd done some stuff in law school that, you know, I mean, I'd done some, you know, moot court, that kind of stuff. So I had some experience, you know, with, you know, speaking and things like that. Uh, now, one story, uh, you know, some people are scared to death of public speaking. When I was in college, I had a job at Disney. I was a skipper on the Jungle Cruise. And so I became very accustomed to public speaking. Uh, we had a spiel we would go through, you know, and I was what they call casual temporary. I had like, I did it one semester and it was, uh, you know, I had like the 3 PM to midnight shift. So it was a, it was not the most glamorous shift. That's for sure. But as a skipper on the jungle cruise, I did a lot of public speaking. And so, you know, I, so I, I learned to do it. I learned to be comfortable with it. Uh, hold on, you know, hold on. So, I just they say you, they say to repeat when you hear something so that you know repetition is a helpful advocacy skill. So what I hear you saying is you were the the narrator dude on the the Jungle Cruise. Correct. That's true. Can can I can I title this because I want to start doing titles uh, Jungle Cruise with Tom Dukes. I mean because. Yeah, there, there is a there is something to the comfort that you get if if I'm thinking of that boat of a fresh group of I mean I'm guessing you know twelve to fifteen people on the boat I don't know how many and you're gonna have to engage with them in some yeah, way. Prob- 
probably about 30 in the boat. And uh, yeah, it, it, it was actually a great experience. We had, you know, you had a, a you had a, a, a speech. And as you approached each part of the animation, you had to talk about that, like, you know, the Irrawaddy River and the, you know, Hippopod and all that kind of stuff. But you had also some lines you could deviate from. You know, you, you had, like, there were some approved jokes. And so it was, you know, it was, it was actually a very good experience. Um, you know, just yeah. on your feet, so, thinking like someone so, would trip when they're getting a boat, and you'd say, no dancing, ma'am. So, you know, just, just you know, just things you learn to do. Uh, so it was a great experience, but the but the things that make me the nervous in litigation: deposition of my client, deposition of my expert in the hands of good lawyers. In the hands of good lawyers. Now, with the deposition of my expert, I've usually had always had the plaintiff's expert go first, so I can you know that's maybe a little less nerve wracking. But boy, good lawyers cross examining folks, clients, experts. You know, when you get this sense, uh, he's got something here. You know, it's just not a good feeling. It's just not a good feeling. All right. Now we're going to play a word association game. Uh, I'm pivoting. Uh, I, I played around with this. A buddy of mine said, just say a bunch of words and then have them say back just one word, any word, whatever the first word that comes to mind is. Okay. Dangerous game. And we'll it's, do it. uh, all right. Here we go. All right. Um, jury trials. Anxiety provoking. Depositions. Important. Judges. Human. Email. Necessary. Cell phones. Could do with a lot less time on them. Hospitals. Uh, helping. Doctors. Healers. Nurses. Compassionate. Insurance. Necessary. Plaintiffs. Human. Competition. Good for the soul. Injustice. It's a real world. Justice. The best result. Success. Relative. So now I'm going to... Uh, flip into uh, a more pragmatic section and it's, it's practical things. And it's kind of one idea, one quick idea, two or three sentences, short, like best piece of advice you would have for a, a quick range of topics. So okay. where I'm going to start, I'm going to start with uh, dealing with judges. Judges are people, too. They're good ones. They're bad ones. There's those in the middle. Um, you should be prepared and respectful, and you should see them only when absolutely necessary. Dealing with a completely uh, adversarial person on the other side who has no uh, perspective on 
you know, what, at least you perceive them to have, you know, very little perspective on professionalism or civility, and they really have made it kind of an ugly process. What, what advice in dealing with that person? Be patient. You never know what they are going through and pick up the telephone and be think twice, three times, four times, five times about at what level you engage. Dealing with a loss when, when, you know, when you try a lot of cases, you lose, it's just inevitable. You don't pick the juries. You're going to have cases you lose that you cared about. Best advice on, on dealing with loss. Don't overthink it. Sometimes when people lose cases, they say, I will never fill in the blank. And it's an overreaction. You see, the sad thing is we really don't know why we win and we don't know why we lose. I mean, it's rare, rare we get that insight because we can't, you know, okay, I mean, if a juror calls us, we're free to engage, but it doesn't happen very often. And if you win the case, you don't even want to hear from them. Uh, but so we all have to look constructively at why we win or why we lose. But as lawyers, we got to recognize there's a lot we don't control. When you win, you're not necessarily Clarence Darrow. And when you lose, it wasn't necessarily your fault. What are the most common mistakes, plaintiff's lawyers and defense lawyers at mediation? Um, a, uh, the, I think it's professional and appropriate that if I believe no money is going to be offered at a mediation, I think it's professional and appropriate to call the opposing lawyer before that mediation and say, look, just prepare your folks. It is my sense. And sometimes truly, genuinely, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm not always privy to the thinking of those I represent. And, and sometimes it changes, truly, genuinely, sometimes it changes. But if there, if I have a sense there's not going to be any money offered, I try to either send them a quick email, hey, just, you know, not sure there's going to be money offered, give me a call if you have any questions, or call them and say, you know, my sense is we believe this is a matter that ought to be defended. And, um, you know, and I think that helps. I mean, that's, that's, that's not a, that's not good news, but there is no sense making people mad at a mediation and that can take various forms. One, not letting people know in advance that there's not going to be any money offered on the defense side that people tend to show up with high expectations. And if that's the case, that tends to make them mad Two, some plaintiff's lawyers give lectures about excess verdicts and chasing people around. I don't, I don't, I don't find that helpful. I find it tends to harden lines. Um, meaning, three, meaning the effort to apply pressure and intimidation yeah. is in more likely yeah, than I, not. I, I, I think it's counterproductive. I actually think it's counterproductive. Uh, thirdly, if, you have something that is truly new at the mediation. For example, you've got some, you know, uh, you've got some fact that's not known. You know, you've got some surveillance. You've got something that you really intend to use. Think about disclosing it before the mediation so people have a chance to digest it. 
because sometimes if you disclose it at the mediation, there's a reaction to it that makes the mediation counterproductive. Uh, what are, what's your philosophy on demonstrative evidence? The one I'm talking about is one you used against me in trial that I've, I, I can see it. Like it's a, it was on a flip, it was on a, a, like a blow up, but it wasn't a professionally done diagram. It was like hand drawn yeah. that just showed the basic anatomy that you used uh, a lot. Like I remember I, it kind of became an anchor in the case. Yeah, I am not a um I'm not a PowerPoint guy. Um I think if you show people a PowerPoint, one it's a crutch for the speaker. And two, they watch the PowerPoint, they don't walk, watch you. Uh so I believe that when I'm for example giving an opening or a closing, the focus ought to be, you know, people's eyes ought to be on me. So I like the intimacy of old-fashioned blow-ups. One, you can control them. Two, they're always there. Three, you can they are close to you so you don't lose the audience when they look away. And so I, I believe in the intimacy of evidence that is close to you physically that you can well control. And, you know, people say, well, that's, you know, Living, moving to the you know current age where everybody wants to see a bunch of computer stuff. Uh, our goal is to effectively communicate, and in my view, a lot of the ability to communicate is lost if the focus moves from the speaker too much to, for example, a PowerPoint. So I, I believe in four or five or six key pieces of evidence. And then the rest of them you do by PowerPoint or trial pad or whatever you choose to do. Obviously, these days, I mean, the medical records, with the advent of electronic medical records, our typical chart may be 3,000 pages. So, you know, it's clear that you've got to have a computer way to present that. There's no doubt about that. There's no debate about that. But as far as opening, closing, examination of key witnesses, I prefer the intimacy of something that keeps the, the attention on me and not artificially separated. My partner, Andrew, had uh, the question of how do, how do you do this as long as you have and still enjoy it? Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's fascinating work, and I'm blessed by God to be able to do it. I mean, how many people in this world would have the opportunity to do this, you know, to be a first chair lawyer for significant cases as a vocation. You got to be born at the right time. You got to be born. I mean, I ain't the smartest guy in the world, but you got to be born with the intellect to do it. You got to, you know, be free enough from war and famine and pestilence to be able to do it. You've got to have, you know, you know, some basic tools to do it. You got to be fortunate to live in a society where it's valued. I mean, you know, a, I enjoy the work. I enjoy the intellectual challenge. It's fascinating. I think it's important. I feel very fortunate to be able to do it. So, you know, so I'm I'm glad to I'm glad to be able to do it. And I, I you know, I'm glad to be able to do it. I enjoy it. 
What makes a good mentee? I'm almost done, and I'm and I got and I'll, I will land the plane, but I, I don't want to forget because I, you know, I, you've had uh, a lot of uh, really good lawyers. Uh, you have them in your firm currently, but you've you've had many good lawyers that you've been a mentor to. What is it that the 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 lawyer who is the mentee? What are some of the things they do that makes it? where you want to be their mentor. You get what I'm saying? Where you're sitting there saying, I, I want to help this person. What are some of the things they do that makes that easier for you? Um, I'm reading a book right now by a guy named Mike Hayes called Never Enough. And he was a SEAL. And in fact, it's one of these books that it's it's hard to read it because the, the author has done so much stuff that you feel very insignificant when you are reading this book. I mean, you... He's a remarkable guy. But one of his philosophies is always choose the hard way because it makes you better. Even if you fail, choose the hard way. So what I like in somebody that I'm trying to mentor is somebody who volunteers for tough stuff. And if that could be a piece of advice I'd give to young lawyers, volunteer for hard things. It will make you a better person. It will make you a better lawyer. It will stretch you. We never know what we're capable of until we're required to do it. And so a willingness to step outside your comfort zone, a willingness to, to you know, know you're probably going to lose, a willingness to fail if the, it helps so much in learning how to succeed. And that, that's um, – I, I really appreciate young lawyers who, you know, if if I say – you know, if I say we've got a tough subject here, I love the young lawyer who says, hey, let me do it. What would be the opposite of that? What makes you think you would be more polite and probably wouldn't put it this way, but you're just like, I do not want to work with this guy. What what does that? Failing to present a good work product raises my blood pressure a little bit. You know, part of our life is as defense lawyers who deal with insurers, we have you know, reports that we commonly have to do, and they're detailed, and they're lengthy, and they're complex. And sometimes I'll have a, you know, a lawyer who's working with me on a case do the initial draft of the report, and I always read them in detail, always, always, always. Anything goes out this door, it's my responsibility, I read it. Um, but the, the, over the years, the, the quality of the product I've received very substantially and it's it raises my blood pressure a little bit if if that first round is not as good as it should be so lack of preparation lack of attention to detail life is about doing the little things well and if if one presents a problem where they've not done the one presents a product where they've not done the little things well you know, grammatical errors, you know, facts wrong. That that's 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 unfortunate. In terms of uh, your practice doing uh, medical negligence cases, defending doctors and and healthcare providers, I want I want to give people who who don't do this just a quick glimpse of the the breadth and the variety that you and other med mal lawyers deal with. Um, you, have you done a cardiology case? Yes, many. 
cardiothoracic surgeon, heart surgeon? Yes. Yes. Pediatrician? Yes. Obstetrician? Yes. Emergency room doctor? Yes. And all these surgeon. are tried, of course. Cases tried. Yes. Yes. Orthopedic surgeon? Yes. General surgeon? Yes. Pediatric surgeon? Maybe. <laughs> uh, infectious disease doc? Yes. Um, gastroenterologist? Yes. Nurse practitioner? Yes. Neurologist? Yes. Yeah, that's good. Okay. I ask every person that I talk to uh, two uh, questions. The first is if you were to give one piece of advice to a group of lawyers that are, say, uh, um, 25 to 35, that kind of new, uh, not fully established, what piece of advice would you give them? I would give them two pieces of advice, if I may. One, choose your mentors well. Secondly, step out of your comfort zone. Stretch yourself. Take on things. Don't be afraid of failing. Second group, um, they're established in their career. Uh, they, they've got some level of comfort with what they're doing, but they still have a lot of time left. They're, they're 45 to 55 um, they're comfortable. They know they're supposed to be a trial lawyer, uh, but they've got, you know, a decade or decades left. What advice would you give them? Keep it in perspective. No single case is worth compromising your ethics. No single case is worth your reputation. We are frequently called upon to make, make ethical judgments and keep it in perspective. Realize, by the grace of God, you're going to be doing this for a long time. Try to walk away on your own terms with a clear conscience. How many years have you been married? I have been married for 37 years. 30, it'll be 38 in May. If you were to give one uh, piece of uh, wisdom on marriage... That is is for real. If you if you eliminated humility and you went right to this is what I've really learned about having a good marriage. What would it be? Be the peacemaker. Be the first one to be the peacemaker. Be the first one to be the peacemaker. Even if you think your spouse is crazy, wrong, or nuts, swallow your pride. Make peace. Tom, thanks for your time. Uh, I really appreciate your your generosity. I uh, I appreciate, uh, frankly, how well you uh, model a lot of uh, character traits that I really admire: uh, loyalty, um, uh, commitment, uh, doing your best to you know be an honorable person, trying to stay positive even in an adversarial world. Uh, your protection, the protective side that I feel like I relate a lot to as well on the other side, but your protective side. And, uh, you know, I've enjoyed uh, trying 
cases against you. I've enjoyed litigating against you. I've enjoyed representing the same clients, getting to know you in uh, other settings. So uh, I look forward to journeying, hopefully, more together. And uh, thanks for the wisdom. Appreciate your time. All right, man. Thanks. Enjoyed it.